How many of you ever get impassioned about something and you start to talk about it and you get so impassioned that you, um, you get a little fiery about it and you get a little too fired up about something and you say it, things ungraciously? Does that ever happen to anybody? Or is it just me? <laughs> um, so I, I, I need to, to talk to you this morning. I, 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 I was ungracious last week in something that I get pretty passionate about, and that is when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, I, I get pretty strong about that and my feelings about it. And, and where I get really strong about my feelings about the doctrine of salvation is, is I don't have a lot of patience or tolerance for anybody who presents the gospel with man contributing to that. And, and I, get pretty, I get pretty worked up about it. And last week I said some bad things about people who might hang a painting on their wall that shows Jesus knocking at the heart store. And um, I do still think it's not a good painting, I'll be honest with you, because I don't think that's a picture of salvation. But I will say this. Um, there is truth to the matter that, that there is something that the Spirit does. The Spirit woos our heart. I mean, it's called the call of God, right? And, 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 and I know in my own life and in talking with others, just because God calls doesn't mean we respond right away. So I understand the sentiment towards the painting. I still just think, and, and the painting I'm thinking of is probably not the one that you have hanging on your wall, if you have it hanging on your wall. The original painting um, actually pictures Jesus as a king with his crown knocking at a heart's door. And, and when I think about that, it, to me, it demeans Jesus. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all. He doesn't have to knock at anyone's door. <laughs> he, he, he's the owner of all the doors. And so I, I apologize for my words last week. They were, they were very ungracious. And so um, we're going to move on from that. If you have your sheet from last week, get it out. If not, there's a few left back on the, the desk back there in the sound booth. Um, and... Uh, we're going to move forward. This is a test of those. I told you last week, if you were here, to keep your sheet with you. Some of you are like, oh, this is the week I cleaned out my Bible of the 28 bulletins and all the other things that are in there. Huh. Yeah. So um, we're talking about gospel, and we've been talking, we talked about gospel last week. We're going to talk about gospel two weeks from Sunday, um, and probably this is going to stretch into the first week of May. ABF leaders, just be aware of that. Um, you knew once I got started, I wasn't going to be able to stop. Um, so we throw around the word gospel quite a bit. We, th we throw it around. It's used. And, and, and I, I understand that it's a good term. It means good news. But we better understand what we're saying when we throw around the term gospel. And, and, and my burden is for, for the people that I shepherd that, that, one, that we would be really clear on our understanding of what the gospel is and really clear on what the gospel isn't and that we would be really clear on, on, what, on what salvation is and what salvation isn't. Because if we don't have a clear view of that, one, our evangelism is going to be awful. Okay, And not only that, if, not, if our evangelism is going to be awful, in some cases, I, I actually fear this, not like shuddering at bed at night, laying awake, but I do fear this, that there are people who are good people, good-hearted people sitting under, you know, every week in our ministry here, who, who think that they're believers and they're not. And why would I say that? Well, Jesus himself said this. Many will come to me on that day and say what? 
Lord, Lord, we did all these things. And it's the emphasis on all the things that they did. And, and when, it, when the emphasis is on all the things that you did, the emphasis is wrongly placed because the emphasis needs to be on what Christ has accomplished for you. You understand that? If, if, the emphasis in your, if in the emphasis in your testimony is all that you have done and all that you are doing, something's wrong. Your testimony really ought to be about what Jesus accomplished for you. Does that make sense? That, that's what a true gospel testimony is. It's about what Christ has accomplished. Um, I put it this way. What is it that you and I, what's the only thing we bring to the salvation testimony? Sin. Yeah, we, we bring a wretched person to the gospel story. That's what we bring, okay? Um, when we sing that song, that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, okay? Either, either he paid it all or he did nothing. So I mentioned last week that even putting down these things that I've put down, that the elders have put down for us to kind of look at in terms of gospel story is, is a dangerous thing in that the gospel, yes, is simple enough to be understood, but there's also this. Have you stopped to think about this? If the gospel, if salvation is clear enough that you can wrap your head completely around it, that you can make sense of all of the ins and outs, if you can make sense, for instance, of the fact that the Bible says that, that God elects us before the foundation of the world, but he also says whosoever will may come, if you can make complete sense of that, um, something ought to scare you about that. Why? Because this all comes from God to us. And there are some things that, that don't make sense in the Bible. Anybody figured that out? There are some things that when you look at it, it's like, I see one thing here, I see one thing here, and those things don't ever line up. But in the mind of God, do they always line up? They do. And so it's okay to be a little uncomfortable with parts of the gospel story if, if, in the end, you understand that it's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Christ has done alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay? That's okay to be uncomfortable with some of this. So, let's talk again about God. We, we, we kind of ended here. Um, if you have those sheets, uh, correct that. It's not Revelation 4.13, it's Revelation 4.11. Um, we talked about this last week. I just want to kind of review here, though. Um, the Bible reveals to us who God is. He's the creator of all. He's sovereign over all. And, and, and we say that there in the first statement statements. Because God is the creator of all. He has the right to tell us how to live. Is that a true statement? He has, because he's creator over all, that's a nice way of saying that he is sovereign over all. When you're creator over, over all, you get to call the shots, don't you? Right? And so the Bible then tells us that God's holy, that he's absolutely perfect, that he's free from sin, that he's unique in all of his attributes. And then we have this demand from God, this standard that we're all called to holiness, okay? 1 Peter 1, verse 16, you be holy as I am holy. And so what we need to know ourselves and what we need to tell others when we are sharing the gospel is, is that, and notice that, that we begin with God, we don't begin with man. 
And let, let me just let me expand on that for a second. Any gospel presentation that begins with man and here's what God can do for you is going to be lacking. Because it turns, it turns you into a snake oil salesman. And it turns you into to having this product that's going to make somebody's life better. Do yourself a favor this week and ignore a lot of the advertising that's going to come to your mailbox, that's going to be on your radio airwaves from supposed churches that are going to do amazing things this coming week to get people to come in so they can get a little bit of a therapeutic view of God and get saved. This is the classic week for it. This is the classic week. We're going to drop Easter eggs from a helicopter 50,000 feet in the sky, and your kids are going to just love it. And then we're going to tell them a little bit about Jesus, and we're going to invite them forward, and they're going to pray a prayer. And guess what? Their, their whole family is going to be saved. Again, I'm getting passionate. Folks, the Easter story isn't about that. The Easter story is about, about a God who, who, in his plan, sent his son to die to, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be rescued from our sin, and that's the only way we're going to be rescued. So we begin with God, and then we talk about man here. I think it's important that you and I understand this, that when God made man, he made us perfect, right? He made us perfect. And Adam disobeyed, and, and he sinned against God, and, and how does that affect you and I? Well, there's some verses there I want us to, I want us to all hear this morning. Somebody look up 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 6. Somebody look up Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 and be ready to read even some more verses there. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Is man just a little heart sick or is man completely fallen, church? How do you know man's completely fallen, does man, need, does man need reformed or does man need regenerated? Because most gospel presentations that I'm reading in current literature and most that I'm hearing from preaching that, that I hear from, from other preachers is, is that we just need a little reform and that the gospel is here to reform us. Reforming implies that there's a lot there to good to work with to begin with. Is there anything good in man to work with that God can take and work with? No, there's nothing. Okay, what does 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 6 have to say? Again, did I get the wrong verse? See, I send this out to the elders and they don't proof text it. <laughs> Nothing, yeah, yep, there's nothing good, nothing good in me either. Um, just pray, yeah. Did I get that? What did, what did I, was it 18, Aaron? No, it's not 2 Kings. Yeah, I know. Someone read Romans 3 while I try to rescue this one. Romans 3, please, verse 10. Okay, and if you continue on, just read the next few verses, Miranda. Stop there. Say that again really loud. No one seeks for God. When the Bible says that no one seeks for God, is that a true statement? 
Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Then why do we act like people are just out there seeking after God? Why do we conduct our ministries like they are? Do you ever stop to ask yourself that? Yeah, man is out there seeking something, and, and, and have you ever heard this phrase, that there's a, there's a God-shaped void in everyone's heart? You ever heard that statement? And, and there's some truth to that, but, but in, what's implied in that, I think, is, is, that, is that man's out there looking to fill that with God, and that he's desperately seeking and, and wanting after God. He wants what God can give him. And, and, and the Bible is very clear. No one is seeking after God. Because if someone is seeking after God, guess what they get to say? I sought harder than you sought. And, and, and I did better than you did. I was going harder after God than you were before, before you even realized there was a God to go after. And what does that become then? It becomes a work, doesn't it? it becomes a work. So no one is seeking after God. Keep reading, Miranda, please. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Okay? Go down and read uh, verse 23, Miranda. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Thank you, Ed. <laughs> Again, I left a number out. It's 1 Kings 8, 46. Whoever had 1 Kings, yeah, was that you, Ashley? Verse 46. Yeah, as, as, as God here is talking, and, he, and he's talking with his prophet, he says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. There's no one who does not sin, okay? That's not just a New Testament idea. That's an Old Testament idea. That's why I wanted to be sure that we got that right. Thank you, Ed. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thank you. Stop right there. I'll have you finish. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What can dead people do? What can dead people do? Stink. What can they do? Are you sure about that? So dead people can't go hard after God. Okay? Dead people, dead people can't, can't, apart from God intervening, can a dead person do anything? No. Not even close. Okay, keep going. Okay. 
catch the end of that, verse 3 there. We, we're living in the passions. We're living in our desires. As dead people, we are following our own desires, right? We're spiritually dead. We're, we are consumed with our own desires. We, and, and this is what we're seeing in the world today. And it's, and it's becoming even more and more unrestrained as, as the Lord tarries, is we are living in a world that is going hard after the things that they want, hard after the things that they want. That's biblical, okay? It's biblical. It's happening, okay? But it says at the end of there, what's that last phrase? We're children of what, Debbie? You turned off your, you turned off your phone. We're children of wrath. Do you understand what that means, that we're children of wrath? Whose wrath? God's wrath, okay? So, so, that's something that conveniently gets left out of most gospel presentations is, is that God is full of wrath and fury. And what is his wrath and fury directed at? Sin. Yes. It's directed at... Um, you've heard me say this, but it, it's just so true. I, I had this happen to me again this week with somebody that said, I'm more, I want a more of a New Testament view of God. I don't want the Old Testament view of God. I tend not to read the Old Testament because God is angry in the Old Testament, and he's, he's doing these horrific things. And I said, have you ever read the book of Revelation? It doesn't get much angrier than, than Revelation, does it? God is a God that's full of wrath, directed at sin, Okay? So, so let's understand here, as we're talking through gospel, we, we need to understand who God is. We need to understand where man fits into this equation, okay? There's nothing good about man. There's nothing redemptive about man in his unregenerate state. So we move down to, to the third paragraph there, sin, okay? The reason that man needs the good news of the gospel is because man's sin must be punished, Okay, why must man's sin be punished? Because God is what? A God of what? Justice, okay? Okay, justice is a big term in the world that we live in today. People want justice, but they really don't want justice in its purest form because if we all got justice in, the, in its purest form, we would all be condemned. Because God is a creator, because he's holy, because he's just, sin must be punished. So what is the punishment for sin according to the Bible? You all know this. Give me the Sunday school answer. Death. What does that mean? Okay, what does it mean to be separated from God? Okay, we're totally cut off from any goodness that could come to us from even having anything to do with God. Totally cut off. Romans 6.23 says what? Somebody quote it for me. The wages, the payment of sin is what? Death. Okay? All right, so. Is there anything that man can do to repay God his sin debt? Does man try to? Does man attempt to repay his sin debt? Yes, he does. Okay? And what we read in Romans chapter 3 earlier is, there's no hope for man unless the sin debt is paid. Okay? The gospel, quite honestly, can get pretty dark, can it? It's pretty dark up until this point, right? 
I mean, this is, this is not great news. It's a good thing there's a second side to the sheet of paper here. Okay? Apart from God's intervention, there's no hope. How did God intervene? Well, he intervened in Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it's a Christmas story verse, right? But, but what does Matthew reveal for us? What does the Holy Spirit reveal for us through the pen of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? What's specific about Jesus and his name? What's, what's, the, what's the title given to him there? What's the action that's given to him there? Somebody read Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He, okay, he will save his people from their sins. Okay, his people, is that just the Jewish people? No, no. Um, we, we find out later in, in, the, in the gospel accounts that Jesus says this, all that the Father has given to me, I will bring to me, right? All that the Father has given to me. There's, there's, a, there's people here that, 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 the, that the Holy Spirit has in mind when he's writing this, when he says his people, Okay, so Jesus paid the penalty for sin. First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. This is an important verse. This is such a, a key, vital verse here. First Peter. Let's all look at it. First Peter chapter three, and verse eighteen. For Christ also, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Okay? Understand here what Peter is saying. Okay? I have used this verse in gospel presentations with people. I've had them sit down and look at this verse with me and substitute in there. In that second phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus for, and put that person's name in there. Jesus for Dan. Jesus for Dan, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay? Notice what it accomplishes. What's the next phrase say? He brings us to God. Okay? When you're brought to God, you're not, you're not in that position of spiritual death anymore where you're cut off from God. You're now in relationship with God, okay? So Christ's death, we, we write it down here, Christ's death satisfies the justice of God, which demands that the penalty for sin must be paid in full, okay? So understanding this further, through his perfect life, Jesus satisfies the man, demands of God's holiness, Okay? It's not just enough if God would have said, okay, I'm going to send Christ as an infant, and, and here's the thing. I'll let Herod kill him when he's two years old, and that will be, he'll be the sinless sacrifice for, for all of mankind. What's missing in the equation? What didn't Christ do? What didn't he do? He didn't live that sinless life, did he? then we can't have verses that say he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Okay? So he has to live this, this life, and he lives it fully, and he satisfies the demands of God's holiness. Let's look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5.
Verse 21, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. If you're the kind of person that, that writes in your Bible, there's a word that, that need, you need to put in the margin of your Bible right there. It's the word imputation or imputed. Okay? How, how is it that God, God can take those of us who are unrighteous and make us righteous in Christ? What does he have to do? He has to put the righteousness of Christ to our account. The Bible term for that is imputed, imputed righteousness. God takes the righteousness of Christ, he puts it to our account, and literally when God sees you and I who are in faith, by faith in Christ, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, he does not see unrighteousness. Isn't that an amazing thing? Okay, can you and I manufacture that? Can we produce it? Can we fake that? Can we fake the righteousness of Christ for God and fool him? No. It has to be given to us. Okay? It's substituted to us. Because of his substitutionary death in the place of sinners, sinners have the offer of forgiveness for their sin if they place their faith in him. Romans 3.26. Someone want to read that for us? Romans 3.26. <clears throat> that he might be just and the justifier. Who does the justifying? Who? God does the justifying. You want to know the problem with all of the world's religious systems? All of the world's religious systems have who doing the justifying? Have man doing the justifying. And that's never going to work. It's never going to work. God, God and God alone Okay, it goes back to this idea, and I know you get tired of me saying this. If God is truly sovereign over all, then he truly is sovereign over all, right? If he's truly in control of all, then he's truly in control of all. And, and that means that you and I can't justify ourselves. He has to be the one who justifies. So how do you respond to that? Well, you, you walk an aisle and you pray a prayer, right? Not against that, but is that how you respond to that? How do you respond to this? Well, the Bible teaches that genuine faith in the work of Christ will be accompanied by repentance. Okay? The two must go hand in hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1. Jesus, beginning his ministry, okay? As Mark records it, this is, this, is, this is the gospel proclamation. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, the good news that he's brought from the Father and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What are the two things that are commanded there? What are the two verbs that are commanded? Repent and believe. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. What is repentance? Is repentance saying I'm sorry or is it saying my bad? What is repentance? 
Say it again, Charlene. Repentance is a total change of heart that results in a change of activity, right? Uh-oh. Big Brother's listening. He doesn't like it. Notice what we say here. Repentance means agreeing with God about one's sin. Okay, what does God say about our sin? What's he say about it? He hates it. He's, he, can't, he can't abide it. He's going to judge it. He, he's going, he, he poured out his wrath on Christ because of our sin. Okay? So repentance means agreeing with God about one's sin by confessing those sins and turning away from rebellion against God. Let's look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Maybe you can remember back when we preached through this and talking about the Galileans who's, who had been slaughtered by Pilate when they were offering sacrifices. And what does Jesus say? You know, um, do you think, verse 2, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's saying, are you trying to tell me that because of the horrific way that they died that they must have been worse sinners? No, Jesus says this in verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, there, there is no salvation without repentance. There is no salvation without repentance. Okay, somebody want to look up 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Okay, eternal punishment away from the glory of the Lord and the power of his might, okay? That is is a promise that's given of judgment. Do you understand my great aversion then to the phrase about asking Jesus into your heart? Does asking Jesus into your heart even begin to hint at the amount of repentance that's needed? It doesn't. It doesn't. And I understand where that comes from. We do things with our kids to try to make the gospel simple, and we should. But even a child understands sin and its consequences if you've been parenting correctly, right? Right? If you've been parenting correctly, a sin should un- your, ch- your children should understand the consequences for sin, correct? And it gets laborious and tedious because our kids are like their parents. They just keep sinning over and over, right? Right? And, 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 and we have to explain over and over. This isn't just something that you've made mommy and daddy upset. You have offended God. You have, you have, you have absolutely violated God's standard here. So... What does repentance, it turns away from sin and pursuit of sin to a pursuit of Christ. John chapter 17, Jesus puts it this way in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says this, 
This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, it's not just I'm, I'm owning up to my sin, I'm turning from it, but now it's, it's a pursuit of Christ to know him. That word know in John chapter 17 and verse 3, it's, it's an intimate word. It's a word about intimate relationship, Okay? Which is why it should be troubling to us when people have made professions of faith but have no desire to be a part of the church, have no desire to be a part of the fellowship of believers anywhere, have no desire to read their Bible, have no desire to pray, but they know that they're going to be in heaven one day because they can point to a date when they prayed their prayer. I repented then. Did you really turn and did you run to Christ? And, and that's what the gospel is calling for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Let's all turn there. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. The same, the same word that John uses in John 17, verse 3, in, in quoting Jesus there, to know him, it's that same word in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. And by this... We know that we have come to know him. Okay, the him there is Christ. How do we know that we know Christ? What is it that John says? Because we have warm fuzzies when we pray. Because we get answers to our prayer. Because we have, no, how is it that we know that we know him according to what he says here? We're perfect, right? What's he say? We keep his commandments. True believers are marked by obedience. They're not marked by perfection, but they're marked by obedience. They're marked by obedience. And it's a cart and horse thing. Do we just work hard to obey to prove that we're saved, or is it because our heart has truly been changed that we do obey? What is it? Because our heart's truly been saved, we obey. The other thing that I described there, working hard to obey to prove that we're saved, that's called legalism. It's called legalism, and that will damn you to hell because there's not true heart change there. In summary, we're saved by God's gracious intervention, which will lead to a, which will lead to a response of faith in the work of Christ that is expressed in turning from sin to follow Christ and serve him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's by grace that you're saved, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Right? We are his workmanship created for what? Works that God before ordained that we should walk in them. Okay? So this is just made to be a resource for you. It's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But it does have the basic points of the gospel. So the gospel then can be presented with bad terminology. I understand that. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But I, what I want to do right now, though, is go with you to a really well-known verse of Scripture, and I want to follow that passage through. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we're not going to get through this this week. How many of you have quoted Romans 8.28? How many of you use Romans 8.28 to encourage another believer? 
How many of you have done it in the context of verses 29 and 30, though? Like, there's a context here? Yes, there's a context. <laughs> there is a context. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a precious promise, isn't it? Okay? It's one we can hang on to. But if we just grab that verse and pull it right out of the middle of Romans chapter 8 without considering the verses that come right after it, we're missing rich, deep theological truth here that God wants us to have that makes even verse 28 even that much more precious. Okay? So, I look at Romans 8 verses 28 or 29 and 30 as what God does in accomplishing salvation. Okay, that's, that's how I summarize these two verses. Okay, remember, what does man bring to the table? Nothing. We bring our sinful selves, right? That's what we bring to the table. So God has to do it all. What does God do? Well, let's read the verses and then let's spend a lot of time unpacking them because there's some things in here that are going to make us uncomfortable. And that's okay. Remember what I said at the beginning. It's okay to be uncomfortable with some of this stuff. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's five things that God does in there. What are they? What's the first thing that God does? He chooses you. Do you see it there? He, he, he knows you. He knows you. He foreknows you. Okay? What's the second thing he does? He predestines you. And we're going to take time to unpack all these words. What's the third thing that he does? He calls. Let's talk about the first two real quick because I want to put them in a timeline. God foreknows and God predestines in eternity past. Okay? That's already been done. God is actively still calling people today, is he not? Is he calling? Yes. Okay, what's the, what's the fourth thing he does? He justifies. Is God still justifying people today? Yes, he is. Okay, those are the things that are happening right now in eternity present. But there's a fifth thing that God's doing, and what's the last thing he's doing? He's glorifying. When's that going to happen? It's a both and. Are you in the process of being glorified now? Yes, but when's that completed? Eternity future, right? Okay. So, so this, these two verses, it's like Paul here is like, it's like, okay, I'm going to take all, and, and all of Romans 1 through 7 and up to this point is just pure gospel, and Paul just kind of stops right here and he just kind of lays it out and says, this is this. This is it from like 50,000 miles high. This is what God does. He summarizes it very similarly back, further back in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's another one of those, those summary statements that Paul makes here in the book of Romans. Where he just kind of, when he comes to the end of a thought here, he just kind of puts this big summary statement together on that. So, 
what is it that God is doing? Well, let me make sure that we understand that verse 29 refers back. He says, for those. For those. Who's the those referring to? The ones in verse 28 that what's God doing, right? Working all things together for good, right? Okay. What, just give me a term for what we would call those people. What are we calling the people that, that God works all things together to good for? Are those believers? Are those followers of Jesus? <laughs> Can we use the term Christians? Okay. So, so this is who he's talking about here. Okay. What, could, what did God do in eternity past? Okay. Words in Scripture are really important, church. And it's really important that we understand that God's that we understand how God in His Word describes salvation. We we it's so important that we understand this. Are we going to understand it completely the way God does? No. No. So this idea of for no. I've heard it explained in so many different ways by so many different people. And yet, if you just take the time to look at what the original words mean, you don't need a lot of explanations here. The idea of foreknowledge is, is really this. It means the word know, first of all, the word know is an intimacy term. For instance, in the Bible, when it talks about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, what does it say in the Bible many times? In the Old Testament, it said it this way, and Adam knew his wife, right? Okay, can you get any more intimate than that? No. Okay? So this is a statement of intimacy. Okay? If you go to chapter 11 and verse 2, talking about Israel, the same word is used, the exact same word is used. He's talking about Israel. God has not rejected his people whom he, what? Foreknew. Who is God's special people? Israel, right? When God, when you talk about is, or God's relationship with Israel, what's a word that you would use to describe that? What's a word that God uses? How does he view them? He what's them? He chose them and he loves them, right? He loves Israel. In, in chapter 9, Paul's going to talk about Jacob and Esau in relationship to this, and Jacob representing Israel, Esau representing those other Arab tribes. He says, Jacob have I what? Loved. Okay? So, let's understand. The idea of foreknowing is, is the idea of choosing to set his love upon when you and I know something beforehand, it's because someone has called us and told us that something's going to happen, right? Right? When we know something beforehand, maybe we have intuition, maybe we can figure it out. But when we know something beforehand, it's because we, we have some kind of sense of this. When God knows something beforehand because he is eternal God, it means that he has chosen to place his love on. Okay? Okay? Because here's the thing, if God is simply looking down the hallway of time to see who's going to choose him, what does Romans 3 tell us? Is anyone going to choose him? 
We established that already, didn't we? Romans 3 says what? There's no one who what? No one seeks after God. Is that, is that in your Bible, church? Is it true? Is it true in Romans 3 and true when we get to Romans 8? Yeah. This all fits together. It all makes sense. Okay? Paul's great treatise on the gospel here all builds together here. And because no one seeks after God, then what's God going to have to do if he's going to have, if he's going to have any who are redeemed? If no one's seeking after him, who's going to have to do the seeking then? God's going to have to do the seeking. You see, if it's of man's initiation and God can look down the hallway of time, if you picture time as a, as a corridor in a hotel where it's a bunch of doors, and, and this is the way that foreknowledge is often said, is that God in eternity past looked down the hallway of time and he just waited to see who would come out of that room and those are the ones that he elected to salvation. Guess what? Who initiated salvation then? Who initiated salvation? The person who walked out the door, right? Does that line up with the other scriptures that we looked at? Okay, let's stop right there. Is that hard for us to swallow, though? For some of us, it is, because if you're saying that God chose some, think back to recess when you were a kid playing kickball. What does that mean, then? Others didn't get chosen. And in our finite thinking, that is really hard to come to grips with. Let's just be honest with that. Right? That God would not choose some. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This isn't the only time that Paul uses these kinds of words. Ephesians 1, verse 3. I get a little sensitive when I come to Ephesians 1, and here's why. I remember earlier on in my ministry, I preached through the book of Ephesians, and when I preached this passage of Scripture, two families left our church the week after I preached it. And their argument wasn't with me, and they weren't angry with me. They were angry with the words that God had put in the Word. But their anger was directed at me. Let's just read the word for what it is. Blessed, verse 3, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's going to start detailing the heavenly blessings that God has given to us. The first one is, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Is the English pretty clear there? What does God do? He chooses. He chooses. Go back with me to John chapter 10. That word no is a, an important word. John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know who? My sheep, or the ESV says, my own. I know my own. How does, how does Jesus know who his own are? How many of you know who your kids are? 
How many of you, how many of you moms, how many of you moms in a crowded room full of other screaming children can pick your kids' scream out? Yeah. How can you do that? You know them. You love them. You're in tune to them, right? Some moms are like, I can't do that, Pastor Dan. Now you're making me feel bad. No. You know them. It's a love relationship. He says, I know my own and my own know me. Okay? It's the same idea in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see that this is not just a one verse kind of thing here. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, weeks after that town has been blown apart by, by the, the trial, the arrest, the trial, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, all the aftermath. Remember what happens, remember what happens on the day that Christ dies, okay? It's the day of Passover. What happens at the temple that day? The curtain's torn in two. Rocks are shaking. Stuff's starting to crumble and fall, okay? There's also this phenomenon that, that I don't even begin to understand, but remember the saints, the Old Testament saints, they're resurrected, and what are they doing in Jerusalem? They're walking around. You think Jerusalem might be a little on edge? Okay? CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they'd all be there, man. No, <laughs> They'd be there trying to disprove it. They'd all be there. <laughs> They'd all be there trying to cover this. And Peter gets up and starts preaching. And notice what he says, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and what? Foreknowledge of God. When did God formulate his plan to redeem mankind, church? When did he do that? Did God, let me ask you this way, let me ask it to you this way. When God created Adam and Eve and just kind of put them down there, did he sit back and go, I wonder what's going to happen here? This is an interesting experiment. I wonder what's going to happen. And then when, when, when Eve took of the fruit and gave to Adam, did God go, man, I wasn't expecting that. That makes God pretty limited, doesn't it? Did God know when he created man what man was going to do? When did he know that? Eternity passed, right? It's the kind of thing that will give you a headache trying to figure out when that happened. Somewhere in eternity passed, right? When did God determine that it was going to require Jesus to come and be the sacrifice for sin? Was that, was that after, after the Garden of Eden? Did God go like, okay, we're going to have to come up with a plan B. Trinity, we're going to have a meeting in the boardroom in an hour. No. God in his foreknowledge, same word, that loving knowledge, God in his foreknowledge determined before, in eternity past, he determined this is what we're going to do. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That probably went over really well. But notice what Peter is saying to the Jews there that day. 
you think you came up with this plan? God had this plan in eternity past, and he knew what he was going to do. Okay? We could use other verses. Let's go to one more, and then we're going to wrap up. First Peter chapter 1, and we'll come back to this. We'll jump right in here in two weeks from today. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The same Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost. Here's what he says. According to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is not just found in Romans chapter 8. It's found throughout all of the New Testament. Okay? This is not just a one-time concept where God just drops it in Romans 8 and intends for us to understand. This is a term that he uses over and over that's easily understood. Okay? The same word is used of Christ in, in, chapter verse, in verse 20 of this chapter. It says that Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake for you. All of this was all set in motion in God's mind in eternity past. You say, okay, Pastor Dan, what about the whosoever will verses? Is God a liar? Is God a liar, church? No, he's not. Are the whosoever will verses in the scriptures? Yeah. Going to have to wait. We ran out of time. Two weeks. Okay? Two weeks, we'll deal with it. Father, we thank you for so great salvation. We thank you that because we are so wretched and vile and sinful, that you and your mercy would intervene, that you would send Jesus to die, that, that you would offer us a way of escape through Christ, that you would love us enough before the foundation of time that you would choose, that you would choose us, that you would, would set your love upon us. We, we can't even fathom that, Lord, but we just have to say thank you, Father. Thank you for that great love. In Jesus' name, amen.